Welcome to Archonnect Sessions, episode 74. I'm Amelia, and I'm here with co-host Donna Sink. And today we're joined by three special guests to check in on what's happening in UK architecture a month after the Brexit decision to leave the European Union. Before we get started, though, we have an item of business to attend to. This week's podcast episode is sponsored by AIA Advantage partner BQE Software and the makers of ArchiOffice. ArchiOffice is the only office and project management software built with the needs of architects in mind. It will help you manage people and projects while you focus on designing great architecture. Our podcast listeners can get a fully functional 15-day trial of ArchiOffice at www.bqe.com slash Archinect. That's www.bqe.com slash Archinect. Now that we've taken care of business, I'd like to introduce our guests today. They are Rob Hyde of the Manchester School of Architecture, who we previously spoke with on an earlier podcast episode right after the Brexit decision came in. We also have Katie Marks of Citizens Design Bureau and Mark Middleton of Grimshaw, who we also spoke with previously about Brexit on One to One. So welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. So Katie, I'd like to start with you as we haven't had a chance to check in yet after this decision happened about a month ago. Can you just tell the group a little bit about how you and your practice first reacted to the Brexit decision? I think that before any kind of professional reaction, I think we all have to respond as individuals and citizens. And in everything that we do as as a practice, we are not looking at ourselves as just architects. We're looking at ourselves fundamentally as as citizens and how do we want our, our cities and our world to be. Sounds all very idealistic, but, but it's true. And as citizens, beyond looking at, you know, the minutiae of how it might affect procurement procedures or, you know, the economic standards of, of various different parts of our profession, it was shocking and it was really disappointing and saddening. And I think that that was largely because I felt a disillusionment with the idea that there was some kind of delusional sense of taking our country back to some era of mythical greatness when I feel incredibly strongly that, you know, particularly since the 2012 Olympic Games, suddenly it felt legitimate and okay and, and actually really great to be proud to be British, to be proud to be diverse, to be proud to be worldly and tolerant, and um, that that's what our country represented, innovation, worldliness, outward-looking, forward-thinking. And I felt that, yeah, absolutely, Brexit took our country back, and it took us back in time, and it feels like we've gone back sort of 40 years or so in terms of progress and the image that the rest of the world has of us. So I think that before any kind of view about what it means architecturally for our company we had to deal with just the emotional response that how do we rebuild a pride and communicate that pride in in what we are as a profession within this context and how much of your firm are based outside of the uk well we're, we're completely based within the uk and you know if, if if you're looking for a kind of specific, how is it affecting us? I think there are, in very kind of concrete terms, there's a few different ways in which it affects us. I mean, one is that I think on many, many measures and, and many opinions point to the fact that we're heading towards a recession, which um, for clients may, in fact, be a good thing to some extent in that it may drive down costs. 
So, we're, you know, we're working on a museum in Manchester at the moment, and that has been the prediction, you know, in terms of how we predict inflation, there's negative inflation predicted. And the cost of building contractors is considered to be probably going down, if anything. But on the other hand, um, the cost of products, such as windows, many of which come from Europe, is probably predicted to go up. There's also a labour issue. You know, if the exchange rate becomes really unfavourable, all the builders will go home. Back to Romania, Poland, you know, we have a big skills shortage in our country, which is a massive problem. And um, so I think that just from a building point of view, there are some quite significant changes happening. From a funding point of view, we're finding that some of the large sort of private benefactors are getting cold feet, putting brakes on, cancelling things altogether. So far, that hasn't affected us too much, but that's mostly because we just don't know yet. But I think it's very likely to have quite a significant effect on us. And of course, there is so much speculation and it is impossible to know at this time exactly what will happen or how it will happen. But in our own talking to a fair amount of architects and published a fair amount of op-eds about this on the site and also speaking with you, Mark, there has been this kind of overall, I don't want to say forced, but nonetheless optimism around what could come in such a atmosphere after Brexit happens. Of course, while it is very uncertain, there there is an understanding to want to believe that this could mean good things. And so, Mark, I'd like you to chime in. And since we last spoke, how have your thoughts on what could happen in the Brexit future, how have they changed, if at all? Well, setting all of the things that have been said in terms of disappointment and those personal disappointments, should I say, you know, this is where we are now. The new prime minister has been very clear that Brexit means Brexit. There's no sneaky way out of it. There's no kind of last minute reprieve. This is where we are. So I think we've just got to kind of um, almost throw all of the disappointment over our shoulders and just kind of uh, play the game that's in front of us, in in, in effect. And I think, you know, there are a lot of things that that we could be positive about. Um, Certainly the creative industries. I know John Whittingdale has been replaced as the culture secretary. Uh, estimated that the creative industries and that includes architecture was worth like um, I think something like 80 84 billion to the co- to the economy in the UK and I think that you know people will still come to the country for creativity for architecture for design I think that you know a lot of the world trades in US dollars and we and our services have become cheaper it's a lot more difficult obviously if you're a, if you're making things and buying raw materials a little bit uh, what Katie's been talking about I think it's quite you know, it'd be more challenging. But if you're selling services like um, architects are, I think we've become, we're not only, you know, accepted as a kind of one of one of the world centers for architecture, but we've just become a little bit cheaper. So I think if we can market ourselves in a different way, then perhaps, you know, there are clients out there that that, that can take advantage of that. So I'm, I'm, I'm very um, optimistic about that, especially, I mean, in my firm in particular, we've obviously got uh, offices around the world and, and we can leverage those things. But we are um, we are seeing that the foreign projects we have ju- are just carrying on. There is a little bit of uncertainty. I think people are waiting. But I have, um, funnily enough, there has been a slight change in the developer market. So the property funds, for instance, have, you know, they've all lost loads of money, all the speculation, all of the kind of people shorting their stocks. They, they need a bit more liquidity. So they've actually, for the last two or three years, been holding onto sites in London, uh, you know, seeing their value accrue as the months go by. But of course, now they need a bit of liquidity. What they're doing is they're actually selling those sites to developers and developers are now bringing things online, especially the developers that maybe have some uh, foreign funding, because obviously that money's 
despise them a little bit more in this country now. So I think actually there's, um, in a strange way, Brexit has released a few sites, especially for residential and potentially, you know, some some commercial schemes. Some of the commercial schemes that I thought would uh, just go on hold at our practice are actually beginning to uh, I just, you know, they're just carrying on, or well, they seem to be carrying on at this point anyway. So I think there's a lot to be optimistic about. I think we've got a lot of talent, we've got a lot of skill, we're, we're a trading nation, you know, I think we've got a lot, I think we've got a lot to offer to the market. And that's not me as a kind of born again Brexiteer, if you like. <laughs> um, I'm just basically, you know, I think I'm uh, like many British people, <laughs> you're a kind of a realist. And actually, we are where we are. And we've got to make the best of it. And I think, the, and I think there are there are some positives emerging. But yet, until there's some uh, proper kind of abolishment of the uncertainty, I think um, you know we're not really going to see the full picture for another six months or so. I don't think. I was just going to say something else. I think we all learned from the the Brexit debate and, and the referendum was that we also can't assume that truthful information will prevail. And I think that one role, um, talking about, you know, the positive role that architects can play, not only in, you know, particular projects, but in a sort of wider discourse, is that we need to be the people who are creating more creative and innovative conversations. And we've just seen that the lies spoken loudest have won in in many, well, some people wouldn't agree, but I, I believe. And so I think as a profession, we're quite well placed to find interesting ways of of building new ideas. Because I think we've all seen as well the sort of dearth of imagination, skill, talent, vision from in, in the sort of political arena. And uh, I think that a profession like architecture has a huge role to play actually with starting to shape some of the debates about how do we want a country that is now free in a way, whether you like it or not, from from various restrictions placed on it by Europe. How do we create a new reality? And and that I think I hope that architecture finds a way of placing itself at, at the real center of that discourse. We hear that echoed by other practitioners as well, is that there's this feeling that architects offer something specific and uniquely helpful in this situation to kind of help frame the the work forward. And so Rob, I'd like to check in with you at this point and, and your position within architecture education. And, and since we last spoke for the podcast, what are some updates or new observations that you've had since? I think we have no option other than to be optimistic. We have to be. And this is in the face of um, certain things that are coming across, obviously the strength of the pound, but longer term consequences of the decision and, and how we can mitigate against some of that stuff. I mean, just in the last sort of week or so, National Audit Office Chief has uh, said that there's a question mark hanging over large projects such as Hinkley Point, Heathrow's expansion, HS2, which could stall. You've got uh, the Civil Engineering Contractors Association saying that infrastructure is grinding to a halt. You've got Barrett's large house builder starting to cool it on some schemes however i think you know we as a profession have the ability to shift to look at other areas where we can operate to capitalize on other things it's a a, i would say a a pretty unique or or more unique than other professions skill set that we have to be able to move to be a, a jack or a jill of uh, as I think I said last time of uh, all thi- of all things a master of one but the one might change and I think we're we're infinitely able to do that I think it's important to understand the context of the UK as well um obviously 
you know, London operates on a very different trajectory. Within that trajectory, it uh, obviously is affected, but uh, not as affected as the second tier cities and certainly not as affected as uh, third and fourth tier cities. What I've noticed from students who were going for interviews in places such as Newcastle and Leeds, those jobs just dried up overnight and haven't returned. Hesitancy for students going and getting positions within the Manchester market, there was a hesitancy and that seems to have, uh, seems to have, you know, seems to start moving again a little bit as well. So obviously sort of uh, the second tier cities, or if you take Greater Manchester in terms of, uh, in terms of the devolved powers and, and, and the size of the city, it's not as affected as other other smaller cities. So I think you need to. Uh, we need to look at uh, look at uh, the UK as not just as London, but as a, a you know as, as a wider thing. Another thing to understand as well. Um, I had a look. The the Architects Council of Europe uh, stated that uh, the UK. Uh, architectural profession has much more interest outside of the EU. And I think we do need to look at that. As Mark mentioned before about working internationally, I think there's a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of smaller practices that hit way above their weight regionally, nationally within the UK. So for me, I think it's important to be optimistic. But uh, having those conversations with students when they've had their positions rescinded left, right and centre is, is, is particularly difficult. Mark, did you have a response? Yeah, I'm. I'm interested what what Rob says because um, at, Grim, at Grimshaw we're involved. We've just won the Heathrow Concept Architect work. We're doing HS2 and we're working on Sizewell and all of those three projects. Actually, I'm much more optimistic about it. I, I recognise that so if you take the first thing first, I think the National Audit Office was talking about the delivery of HS2 and yeah. not necessarily those stages. And I think actually the time scale for HS2 was is, 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 is kind of wildly optimistic. So I think mm-hmm. it was always going to be slightly later anyway. So I don't think it's going to affect the, the, the letting of the contracts or the design stages that are coming out now. So I, think, so I think that'll be fine. I'm led to believe that the Hinkley Point deal is going to be signed in the next few weeks. So I think there will be things coming through from Sizewell. I don't necessarily think that that's kind of a, an EU issue. It's, 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 it's been held up by, it's the cost kind of ratio at which the government buys energy from the company. That's the thing that's been holding it up. So I think that's going to be let go. And as far as Heathrow is concerned, you know, obviously the decision on the third runway is still completely up in the air. But 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 I, I know that, you know, Heathrow have already stated they've got a thirty billion investment program, you know, 20 of which is allied to the third runway and 10 of which is allied to actually bringing the airport up to, uh, you know, a a much higher capacity than it's at at the minute. So, you know, I think the government, as long as the government makes a decision in the next few months, there will be work there. And I think actually, it's a very, very easy thing for the government to begin to get confidence in is to actually, you know, start start greenlighting these projects. And we've had some very good messages from 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 the new Chancellor of the Exchequer. So I'm not so worried about that. I think I think it's, it's kind of an easy win and I, I definitely think those those things will go ahead and obviously from a from a Grimshaw perspective that's inc- it's incredibly important to us but we're, we're, we're very um, we're very confident about it. Katie do you have a response? Yeah a couple of points I think it's important that we don't just either present you know we're, we should be really optimistic and here's why or it's all doom and gloom because I, I think we can be confident about saying it like it is uh, in the sense that you know, for example, there's been a real hit because architecture and construction industry particularly is a sort of bellwether of the economy. So there's been an almost instant hit on high-end uh, residential in London, for example. I've seen some high-end developers selling their, you know, Hyde Park flats for buy one, get one free. 
uh, at the moment, which is, <laughs> is kind of bonkers, wow. really. But it just shows you how overvalued they are. And to be honest, I think that's great. And I think it's great because London's been overpriced for forever. And um, because it, again, forces our industry to then be creative. Where, where are we going to find the other opportunities to create work in, in different sectors that we feel are more sustainable and, and more equitable. So, I mean, I think we can be sort of saying it how it is and be the people that actually promote the alternatives. But also, I think we need to look internally within the culture of the profession as well uh, about how we respond to this. For example, since the Brexit referendum, I know quite a few people who've been made redundant, and this is a completely unscientific study, but many are women, mothers from the EU. And uh, we need to be really careful as a profession to make sure that in an effort to be sort of bullishly competitive um, and outward looking, we don't also step back in time and become a shadow of the uh, a shadow of ourselves, become more closed, become more male and become less creative and innovative for that. That's a, that's a little bit of a uh, doom, doom laden scenario. I'm not, I'm not sure that, that I think that actually, you know, I think we've got to get a lot of this in perspective. I agree, but I believe, and certainly from our business, things were slowing before Brexit anyway. I don't think it's necessarily linked to Brexit. There was a chronic oversupply of high end, high end retail. And I think they, you know, the backside was going to drop out of that market anyway. And I think actually a lot of other developers, such as Argent at Brent Cross, were using, uh, going for more mid range developments anyway, in terms of housing and key worker housing and things like that. And they're actually using, interestingly enough, they've got a development partner related who are doing the, um, who are doing the Hudson Yards thing in New York, but they're an American developer. And, and, and obviously they're going into that. So, so I think it's, you know, I think I'm not so sure. Plus, I, I think that we are, in terms of in terms of women and female architects, has been a quite a you know, well publicised women in architecture movement, of which we're we're part of. And I was at a seminar only on Monday about it. Is, is that I, I do think that we're going to, you know, I, I'm not so worried about it because I think that you know we've got a lot of good professionals in this country, and I think you know, and we've got a lot of good heads of of practices, and I think we'll keep a lot of our skills. And I think you know there won't be a mass exodus of people. I don't think people will be asked to leave the country, for instance. So I think we've got a you know, I'm just I'm trying to not be not be negative about it and just try and think of the actual the most straightforward way through it. Yeah, I think um, you know when when some of my students uh, might mention about the the gender issues, and I know this is kind of going slightly off topic on these things, but you know what what I usually say to them is that uh, any practice wouldn't ask a prospective member of staff if they had a, a disabled or a disabled or an elderly relative, which would uh, make them infinitely less productive than someone that might be might be thinking to have a child or something like that at a certain age so there'll be no reason at all for that to be an issue anyway and i think talking to talking to practices talk, you know it, it, the, there is definitely an absolute shift on that and i think you know there is a responsibility which uh, uh, over the years has has, uh, has been a massive problem within uh, within within the architectural profession that's now getting tackled by the by, by the respective practices and those that don't progress will uh, will will shrivel because they won't get the best people i think you know that what one thing that really does worry me is uh, if uh, th- this concept of this kind of uh, australian based point system which seems to be banded around it does worry me where that data is actually going to come from i had a conversation i might mention this in the last podcast there was a report done by the greater manchester chamber of commerce which basically i was informed that uh, we were producing too many architects now i couldn't understand that because all our students get jobs now they were basing their data on projections on Manchester or Northwest construction market, rather than understanding that those businesses that operate within the region don't necessarily work within the 
northwest construction market. Um, they work nationally and internationally, and they don't only work on pure construction projects. It ranges in terms of the services that they offer. And it does worry me somewhat in terms of um, this kind of going to a, a points-based system for allowing uh, staff into the country to work on various projects. One, how quick it can be to react to needs within a practice, depending on the procurement route that's being taken. And secondly, in terms of where they're actually getting that data from. So it does worry me, worry me immensely of where that can go, particularly on how many practices rely on uh, on uh, on an international workforce. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't agree more, Rob. I mean, h- half of our staff come from we half are British, half are from the rest of the world. Thirty five percent of those are EU, and fifteen percent of those from are from the rest of the world. And you know, people want to come here and work. I know that, but actually, you know, we we struggle to find architects of the of the right quality coming from you know all of all, all of the architectural schools in this country. And they're certainly the ones that do come out are all are all gobbled up in terms of the in terms of the profession so i think that you know the government really does need to look at the fact that there is there is a there is a real skill shortage it's not just people coming from europe for a holiday these people are needed in the country and they've got skills that that, that, that we need in terms of then mediating all of this uncertainty and having to kind of have a fresh look at what types of management and overall regulations should be in place to best bring the architecture profession through this period of uncertainty. I want to speak, have you all chime in a little bit about your positions on what REBA should be doing in this kind of particular uncertain zone. We today just received an email with REBA's Brexit policy briefing, which broke down kind of their basic talking points uh, between opportunities and challenges in the current situation. And, you know, there's nothing absolutely concrete in there, but they are kind of outlining at the very least what their core efforts might be in the days to come. So I'd just like to hear maybe starting with you, Mark, particularly what you feel REBA should be doing and what the role of it should be in a situation like this. Well, the subject of REBA is a, a, a larger larger discussion. I'm not so sure that it's representative. This is a, an organization where only about 15% of its membership actually votes for its president, and its president's only got one year to do anything. I think REBA isn't very representative of, of, of architects generally. I think there's a whole host of, of issues with women in architecture, Brexit. There's all sorts of things w- w- where REBA could stop being very inward-looking. I think it's a very inward-looking organization. It's not very active. If you compare it to, say, the Institute of Civil Engineers or, or, or any other professional bodies in this country, certainly for cost consultancy, it's it's you know it's way down there. So I think it certainly could be doing something. It could be certainly going to the new culture secretary, who's um, who I note has got a degree in maths and is an accountant by training. So I'm not sure how that qualifies you to be uh, a culture secretary and to uh, promote the creative arts in this country. But I would hope that the professional bodies would would go and see, uh, you know, Karen Bradley and start to tell her about how, you know, make representations to the government and be helping us for, for the Department for Trade and Industry make trade missions. We've been on some of those. And I think, you know, it, it, we've got to become more outward looking immediately. And I think the RIBA can help by, by doing that. The RIBA tends to spend too much of its time talking to itself in Portland Place, from what I experienced, but that's uh, that's maybe a, a slightly um, you know out there view. Katie, what about you? What do you think Reba's role in, in mediating the future of this should be? I mean, I think just as you've said that, I've just scanned it quickly. But I would just add something to to the list that they've already written, and it's not particularly related to Brexit, but I've been feeling it for a while and talking about it to, to quite a few people, particularly now at the Architecture Foundation. And I speak obviously, you know, from the perspective of a small company, but I feel really, really strongly that the RIBA needs to bring back recommended fee scales 
every other country, well, not every other country, but many other European countries have it and it's not considered anti-competitive. It's recommended. It's not uh, in any way compulsory. But I think architects have got into an incredibly destructive culture in this country of, of undercutting each other and driving our fees. We're, we're our own worst enemies. Our fees get lower and lower and lower compared to every other professional around the table, pretty much. And and it's because we haven't protected our fees and we haven't fought for their value. And, and the RIB, uh, RIBA specifically hasn't. So I feel really strongly that if we're trying to, you know, boost our industry and to really promote the value of architecture, then we need to be competing on the quality of ideas and experience rather than cost or not cost alone. We never compete on cost alone, but it's become completely skewed. And especially for a small company, it's absolutely debilitating. I mean, we won a we won a competition recently for a museum and a new museum, and I couldn't believe it. I was very happy, but I couldn't believe that we were apparently the most expensive firm that bids, and we were up against some, you know, quite big, well-established firms. And I just couldn't believe it because I felt that our, our fees were ridiculously low, and on no measure could we be giving the best service that we that we would expect to give. And I think that. Um, that suggested to us that the client didn't really understand how to set fee levels and that other architects were simply undercutting each other and, and were prepared to have loss-leading projects, too many loss-leading projects. And I think that the RIBA has a massive role to play in saying we need to promote quality, we need to promote what architecture gives a project in, in terms of its value and to to really drive that home and and be very clear, this is not about being anti-competitive. There's nothing anti-competitive about having suggested fee scales. But that's my little rant over. Katie, if I can pop in here and ask, and I don't want to make this conversation about the United States, but I feel like uh, you what you just said would be perfectly reflected in many members of the AIA here in the US, mm-hmm. um, that, that, that we are no longer allowed to have any kind of published fee schedule, even if it is something that is not compulsory, that's something that is just a recommended standard for what it might cost to hire an architect. So do you, and I would also ask this question of of Mark um, as practitioners, so do you all fear becoming less competitive because you cannot charge as much a good fee as compared to other European firms? I think it's, it's, an, interest, it's, an, uh, it's an interesting point Katie raised. I think that on one side, you know, I kind of, I think it's a good idea. But on the other side, if you look at Italy, for instance, we do quite a bit of work in Italy and they they give you a standard and the fee is like one and a half or 2%. It's a government standard. So you've oh. got to kind of, you've almost got, you've almost got to, you've got to be careful what you wish for because their standards are really low right. because there are loads of architects. There are loads of, you know, one and two person practices who all, who all do, do things together. I think it is cutthroat. I agree. I think that, you know, you do get to a point whereby it does become, it becomes ridiculous and some practices do offer things. But I can't see a conservative free market government, no matter what the arguments around it, it being competitive or not, even if it's just guidance, accepting that, or even if or even if it is published and they're higher. I just I can't see the market I can't see the market responding to it. If we could get it, I'd sign up to it tomorrow, but I just don't I don't know how realistic that is. I know the RIBA could, but I don't know that actually where it is is actually getting out what I think people don't understand the value architects bring to projects. And I think they would do better in showing the the, the myriad of things that we do. It's not just about designing buildings, it's about getting projects off the ground. It's about thinking strategically. It's about writing briefs and teasing out things. There's also there's a whole myriad of things we can do for clients. Helping them build a building is just one of those things. 
I'd like to come in on that as well. I think there's a critical point here. I think, you know, absolutely what was said before, there's a there's a drive to the bottom. I don't know whether that comes from a, a lack of business skills within a number of architectural practices within this yeah. country, particularly, I think, because a number of practitioners, you know, what is it, 20, 30 years ago came out of the public sector where most uh, uh, practitioners were based into, uh, into the private sector. I'm nervous about a mandatory fee scale for a number of reasons. Mark's just mentioned a couple of them there. There is enough money in the market on projects and I think again as Mark mentioned there's a you know you look at you look at the organizations such as the Deloitte and the amount of monies which uh, which sits within projects that the architect never gets to but then he's actually undoing problems that are created by others I think there's a real opportunity particularly in the plan of work at stage zero um, informed decision making for the client informed decision making for policymakers there is a huge amount of, of, of area where we can go and anecdotally I was at a meeting with a, a, a large consultancy at our end of year show and a number of my postgrad students have created digital tools for informed decision making for developers for policymakers, for others and this large-scale consultancy that posts up huge huge fees much more than an architectural practice would came along and said we've not got tools like that this is useful for us can we have it their value that their understanding of what an architect will give away for nothing was there they did not understand that and i said absolutely no chance at all for me we <laughs> as a profession need to need to wander into those areas which we may have lost but i think it's much more interesting to wander into those areas that we haven't necessarily been involved with before or not extricate a fee upon katie did you have a response yeah, just just wanted to clarify that when I was talking about fee scales, absolutely not mandatory at all. I completely agree that it would be be unfeasible and it would be undesirable to have a mandatory fee scale. But it's we don't need a government to say that we can have our own, but you know, such as the Architecture Foundation are considering it now, just publishing a recommended fee scale, which is not in in any way mandatory at all and that everyone can completely ignore at their will. But I think it's worth, it is worth comparing to other countries. I mean, you know, in Germany, you've got a centre-right government. It's just, it's just an absolute standard. Nobody even bothers worrying about undercutting each other in many aspects of of the architecture world, because it's just a given that there's, you know, there's a blanket 10% fee or, or, or something. And it's so, I think, such a problem in Britain that we think that any of those ideas are ridiculously left-wing radical. They're not, and they exist in plenty of other countries where they have right or centre-right governments. And we don't have to wait for the government to say that that's okay to have our own within the profession. I think you're right, Katie. I'm, I guess where this gets back to is the RIBA. We, as a group, as a group of professionals, ceded the ground, and I don't, you know, we've kind of given the ground away, effectively. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of things we we give and do for clients, and we 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 undersell ourselves. I think it's it's part yeah, of a, you know, you know, I think our fees would go up if we were, you know, it's a bit like cost consultants did about 10, 10 15, 20 years ago when they stopped being QSs. They, they did all sorts of things for clients and became embedded in clients and helped them decide stuff. And architects could do a whole range of things if we just got outside of this kind of um, mono vision of we just build buildings. Of course, we build buildings and that's where our value is, but we could do so much more for clients these days. So I think the RBA's place to get back to the, I think the original question is it needs to look at the service we provide and become a, a cheerleader for that really. And then I think the fees and then your point may follow, I think. 
I don't think I don't think that the RIB actually understands what it produces because those individual students that are coming out of architecture school, there is a proportion that fit within a, a defined envelope of what a what an RIBA stamped architect is. Um, and there are a number of others who were losing to uh, the digital and creative sector who are then entering back into into the built environment and actually looking at organizations of, 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 of businesses and things like that. These are areas that I think is the RIB needs to open up and understand that uh, perhaps looking at looking at things such as the RICS, that there is a, a suite of things that uh, that the architect can do and a suite of, uh, of uh, an expanded field, which the architect actually does currently operate in which it can actually encourage. Because, because I think that the profession itself can be quite restrictive in terms of the, the container which we sits within. No, I couldn't agree more, Rob. Yeah, absolutely. So since the Brexit decision about a month ago, there's been a massive shakeup in UK politics overall. Prime Minister David Cameron was replaced by Conservative Theresa May only a couple weeks ago. And she in turn appointed major leave campaigner Boris Johnson to foreign secretary. Um, so <laughs> Giggles all around. <laughs> yes, there's much to be said at that point. But un- unfortunately, what I'd like to focus on, or not unfortunately, but what I'd like to, to hear from all of you is given that this is such a tempestuous time and there's so easy to speculate and of course we can't be for sure but we do know that may has this very difficult responsibility now to kind of take both the leave campaigners and the remain campaigners and effectively negotiate this brexit means brexit decision while not alienating too many of either party um, or too, too much of either group so in your position as architects how might that ideal negotiation for brexit when it does happen because it does seem to be an inevitability at this point how would that ideal negotiation go what would be the core terms for you and your practice that you would want made to make sure happened I think certainly they've got to get on with the trade deals because I can't see there being a kind of Norwegian option whereby we're basically paying for the privilege of the free market free trade and free movement of people free movement of people I think from this government is off the table. These aren't my personal thoughts. This is my kind of take on, on where it is. I think that'll be that will be restricted. I think what they'll do is they'll fight for the EU financial passport so that so that the financial centre in London can keep going. And I think what we've got to do is we've got to try and fast track a lot of trade deals with other countries as soon as possible to kind of open ourselves up to the rest of the world. I can't see this particular government doing any more than that. And that's part of the reason why they've Boris Johnson in the Foreign Office, although it's got a big title. Actually, the, the main business of the international businesses actually dealt with different departments, foreign aid, um, international business and Brexit have got their own ministers. So basically, um, Boris has been kind of emasculated. He's just been, what all Theresa May have done is shove him on a plane to keep him out of the way, I think. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I think there's a massive difference between obviously what we think the government will do and what we think they should do. Yeah. So what do you think they should do to protect the interests of architects? We We can use this to be as pie in the sky as we like. Yeah, I mean, I think that obviously if if I were the prime minister, um, it would be something quite different. But I think, you know, we've all talked about freedom of movement being a really important thing. And I think that even if that's not particularly likely, that would be a principle that I would certainly be promoting. And I think there's a particular problem about research and academia that you know we are, we already see the impacts of that on on students coming but also on 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 research and that is hugely hugely detrimental to our, our kind of academic life and the richness of of what's going on in in the architectural profession um just things like the Erasmus scheme being at risk is just really really sad even though it, it you know 
in concrete terms, it may not re- represent all that much. But I think for the profession and the health of it and the, the kind of discourse that's promoted, it's really, really devastating. But I think also we, in terms of how do you bring people together from, from the different sides of the debate, I think, again, even though a vast majority of um, architects were pro-Remain, quite vocally so, I think what we need to be really careful about as a profession is to avoid a sort of elitist critique of of the way in which the referendum debate was was run and the reasons that people may have voted leave so that we can be seen as a profession that is full of people who can really listen um, who can really respond and who can sort of shape a really different kind of debate that is inclusive and and genuinely responsive and sensitive. And I think, again, this is something that architects are really well placed to do and we need to communicate that that's our skill and that that could be our value. I would definitely agree with that. I think um, in terms of in terms of the architectural profession, we have the opportunity to uh, uh, facilitate dialogue, and I think that's something which has been uh, sadly lacking, particularly outside of the kind of metropolitan elites. The issues were in the dispersed city regions um, within the towns rather than the cities, and I think there's a real opportunity to, for 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 the skill set of the uh, of the architect to uh, to to actually engage uh, and start giving uh, giving some of the those who perceive themselves to being disenfranchised to give them a yeah. voice i think that's uh, you know there's a, there's a, re- a huge opportunity there I, as, as both have mentioned i think you know the the real sticking point is uh, freedom of movement for me as i mentioned i think last time you know it's very sad uh, to think of all the relationships and friendships that aren't going to happen yeah. i think that uh, realistically you know everything from uh, architectural practice through to uh, the National Health Service relies on uh, on 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 inward migration. Uh, it relies on 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 people coming in to actually fuel it. I think going forward as well, when the baby boomers uh, start to age even further, and uh, there's no one to actually look after them, and, and the next generation along, obviously there's going to be a requirement for, for 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 people coming in, not only to pay the taxes but to actually look after them. I think that there's we may end up with somewhere where it is made to look slightly more difficult for people to get in an extra piece of paperwork or whatever. But realistically, there needs to be, you know, a sort of uh, uh, inward migration into in, in, into the country in some way. Another is that uh, it might get dragged on uh, so long as uh, we end up with an election before Article 50 is enacted, where, uh, you know, one or two political parties actually go forward on a track of uh, of re-entering Europe, which is another possibility. But for me, I think it is about that kind of uh, freedom of movement, as was touched on before as well in terms of uh, in terms of education. If you imagine the number of uh, the the number of students, so within our school, there's just under fifty percent of the students are uh, are international students, and a large proportion of them are EU. If those EU students become international students, and across the board, I think it's about five point five and a half six percent of students across the board are international students but a larger proportion within architectural courses. This is a huge amount of money to the economy. You know, you're talking not only the fees that they pay, but living and leisure, going out, buying clothes, whatever it may be, those people are going to disappear. And if it's not an economic argument, there's a danger of that becoming a cultural argument where people just say, we're not actually welcome there. Now, to me, this will absolutely decimate our profession. Mm -hmm. The joy of going into the schools and having such diverse opinions, people staying, people leaving to go elsewhere. You know, this this is a huge amount 
amount of opportunity for us to actually, you know, really sort of put forward that that that, the, that, that we can't lose that and, and that we do have that movement. So I think there will be side deals where EU students are allowed to, well, I would like uh, to see that EU students are, are allowed to sort of freedom of movement to study. The question is, if they're not able to work, what's their incentive to actually come? Mm-hmm. So that this that, that is a slight worry as well. But for me, the ideal is that it's dragged on as long as possible before enacting Article 50 until there is a general election. And then those that go for the general election, the one or two political parties actually put forward to, to re-enter Europe. I like that, Rob. Very practical. This is a great thought, Rob, but I just, I'm not so sure that'll happen. Uh, well, I, yeah, I, don't, I don't think it's going to happen, but it'd be nice. <laughs> well, I think Katie posed it very well better than I was able to pose the question, which is simply, if an architect were prime minister and acting out of self-interest, what would they do to protect and strengthen the profession as much as possible in the Brexit negotiations? And of course, that is not <laughs> the position that Theresa May holds, and she has, of course, many more interests to balance, but we will be very interested to see exactly how this plays on forward. To wrap everything up, I wanted to ask all of you, specifically also because, uh, you know, we're based in the U.S., much of our audience is based in the U.S., and, of, and so, of course, whatever we hear about Brexit and whatever news we, we, we get coming out of the U.K. has a little bit of, you know, space and time in between it and ourselves. So, and of course, we also get whatever biases that you, of course, are also exposed to in the reporting and the overall coverage of Brexit, that certain things get harped on a lot while others are completely ignored. I wanted to hear if any of you had particular aspects of anything to do with Brexit that you felt the mainstream media were kind of not covering sufficiently or not covering at all that you think are integral to the discussion? I mean, there's loads of things, but not really necessarily specific to the architecture profession. No, I don't think so. There is that joke doing the rounds, though, isn't it, that America and uh, the UK are having a competition of who can kind of mess themselves up the most. And, yeah. and we're winning, but they've got we're, we're in the lead, but you've got the trump card. We do. Oh, Lord, we do. The thing is, if we if we win in the short game, we're going to help you win in the long game by screwing you up even more by, getting that, by playing that trump card. <sighs> so we're destined to lose no matter yeah. what. Seriously, though, the, what I, I think has been really interesting in the debate about Brexit that's kind of echoed across over there is this kind of weird deluded idea that we need to be great and the greatest and you know this whole taking our country back making America great again we are Great Britain blah 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 this kind of delusion of greatness and the arrogance that goes along with that and the idea that that it's good to think to profess to the whole world that we're better than all of you and expect that that's going to endear you to everyone else to trade with you is is kind of bonkers <laughs> just isolationism though isn't it i mean it's kind of a it's a it's, it's a form of kind of inward looking um it's kind of an international disease at the minute i think america's yeah, got it. I mean, the, uh, UK, the uk the uk have got it but do they think we're not watching <laughs> yeah but it's, it's kind of a turn isn't it i think once you go towards integration and then it's one of those kind of elastic moments of elasticity that snaps back and it just depends how far it snaps back i think it's not something i would want personally but it's it's a it's interesting that it's happening around the world well, there's a there's an issue, isn't there? Because isolationism has never worked, and I no, think you know, no. the, the, you know, and and I think fun, fundamentally, on a slightly wider uh, on a slightly wider tack, is that uh, you know, there's a the, there's an issue of uh, of false nostalgia, which we touched yeah. on before, and this paranoid style of politics, sort of, you know, this Richard Hofstetter kind of like uh, uh, serious paranoid style of, of, of blame, of control. And I've been watching uh, the Republican and now the Democrat uh, conventions. And, uh, you know, the, the, the language is... Uh, the, the, the language at the Republican convention, very ap- apocalyptic, 
in tone, very very much similar to Brexit, and then also the the kind of uh, the, the the kind of uh, Bernie Sanders kind of and Corbyn like kind of movement, which, which kind of has has sort of similarity as well. I think that there's a that there are a number of similarities that are there, and and they they are around this idea of paranoia, false nostalgia, and and isolationism, which is which is really quite worrying. So on that extremely dour note. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm going to have to head. <laughs> You've depressed me, Rob. Thank you for that. Sorry, sorry. Thank you all very much. We've had our fair share of doom and gloom <laughs> between the DNC, RNC and the Brexit conversation. But thank you all so much for taking part. No worries. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. That is our show for this week. Thank you, Rob, Katie, and Mark, for joining us. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, we are at Arc Sessions on Twitter or you can email us through connect at rconnect.com. If you enjoy the podcast, consider rating us on iTunes. It is a massive help. And if you are an architect working in the UK in any capacity, we want to hear your thoughts on Brexit. We will be posting an anonymous survey to Arconnect in the near future about working and employment in the UK given Brexit, and we want to hear your thoughts on it. You can also always be in touch through Twitter or email. Until next week, thanks for listening.